This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. During his first week in office, President uh, Donald Trump will meet with leaders of Great Britain and Mexico to discuss their relationships and business partnerships. As important as it is for Trump to meet with the U.K. Prime Minister Theresa May, it may be just as important for her as she goes through the process of the Brexit. Then there's also the issue of NATO, which President Trump has discussed as an organization in which the U.S. should potentially get more out of. To take a look at these issues and many more, we're joined here in the studio by Wharton Professor Mauro Guillen, who's also author of the book The Architecture of Collapse, The Global System in the 21st Century, and also joined by our friend Brendan O'Leary, who's Professor of Political Science here at the University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, Happy New Year. Great to see you both. Thanks for joining us. Happy New Year. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Uh, Much uh, of what Donald Trump has kind of started this off, uh, he's really obviously put forth this America first agenda right now. Uh, It's hard, though, I think, for a president realistically to follow that path because of more so many partnerships, trade agreements that, that they have. And the EU, the relationship they have being one, and obviously that's important right now because of what the EU is going through. No, of course. Uh, But let me also say that it's preposterous for a president to say uh, America first as if uh, previous presidents uh, didn't put the country first, right? Right, yeah. Uh, It's not obvious that, uh, uh, you know, being more protectionist, for instance, uh, is uh, in the best interest of the American people. I actually believe that it's not, right? Yeah. Uh, So, yes, there's many uh, wrinkles and there's many issues here involved, and I'm hoping that uh, in the next few minutes we can uh, sort them out. Well, Brendan, I mean, what's going on with the EU right now, and obviously Theresa May uh, made some news last week with her comments and as I said, she's coming to the United States uh, this week. Realistically, what are the expectations for a visit by Theresa May here to the United States? She is hoping, along with the fantasists in her party, that after uh, they leave the European Union, they will be able to get a good trade deal with the United States. Uh, She's not allowed legally to sign any such trade deal. Indeed, it's questionable whether she can even begin to discuss the matter with the U.S. president. But she clearly wants to give the impression to the British people that there will be the possibility of a significant U.K.-U.S. trade deal. Uh, President Trump's uh, verdict on the European Union is not one that any significant empower leader in the European Union shares. They've just been through uh, the mother and father of a a crisis. They've come through. They're not about to collapse. Um, And I don't think, unless he specifies, that it's at all obvious who else might be leaving apart from the UK. And incidentally, tomorrow morning, the United Kingdom Supreme Court will give its verdict on the legality of Mrs. May's proposed mode of exit. And it's likely to conclude that Parliament has to legislate, so she'll be found wrong and have her bottom slapped publicly before the court. Uh, The more interesting question is whether um, she will also find that the court requires her to consult the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Scottish Parliament, which would delay her planned exit even further. And so we could have we could have a rather embarrassed leader showing up on Friday. So then, what meeting the, another embarrassed leader? Well, <laughs> I was going to say. So what does that that do for her in terms of her status as the Prime Minister of the UK? And, and both of you were discussing before this about what really will be her role if she ends up being the person 
you know, being the one that, that is kind of leading the discussions in the Brexit. It's never good for a prime minister to be found guilty of um, breaking the law, even in the UK system, which is highly flexible. Right. So for her to be found guilty of violating the very norm which they were supposed to be defending in leaving the European Union, namely parliamentary sovereignty, will be somewhat comic. It's widespread across the political class in the UK that she took an incredibly long time to make up her mind uh, to commit to what we would call a, a hard UK exit, yeah. leaving the customs union and the single market. And she got very good advice early on that if she was determined not to have the jurisdiction of the European court and to have control over uh, migration, then she had to leave completely. Right. And she refused to acknowledge that, spent a long time um, hoping for other things, lost the services of her, probably her best civil servant with uh, the relevant knowledge inside the European Union. So in terms of preparing for effective negotiations, it's a shambles. Uh, and whether that conclusion will be drawn by other members of her party in due course, we'll, we'll see. But what are, what are you hearing is the reaction of, of other entities within the EU about some of the things that, that President Trump has said about the EU? I, I would imagine there have to be a few alarm bells going off right now. There are. The remark that NATO is obsolete, I, I heard replied to with the remark that the Electoral College is obsolete. So yeah. there's, there's a tendency to play uh, playback showmanship to uh, Trump's more egregious and outrageous remarks. But nevertheless, um, the, the place where these remarks are felt most seriously is Germany the biggest economic power in Europe, the sleeping military giant. And in effect, Trump's remarks uh, echo uh, World War II, as if uh, the European Union has become uh, simply a, an outlet for German colonialism and uh, the, the Germans control Europe. So it would be a good idea if the European Union broke up. That is uh, really destabilizing for German-American relations and indeed destabilizing for uh, European and American relations. The linchpin of American policy since the late 1940s has been to promote European integration and uh, to have NATO as a bulwark, largely against Soviet and then Russian uh, aggression. Those two um, uh, prerequisites of a stable relationship between America and Europe, they've not gone away. And I expect there to be tremendous pushback. It could be that Trump will be lucky in one respect. The, the, the mere fact that we have a very volatile uh, new president might encourage uh, member states of NATO to begin to increase their own spending. Right. Not, however, in an act of solidarity, <laughs> but rather to ensure that in future they have the capability of becoming independent of America if they need to be. What's your reaction to these comments about NATO? Because obviously, like Brendan, I I'm sure you've kind of fallen the same boat that, one, it caught a lot of people off guard, and two, it, it doesn't really float a little bit. Yeah, I largely agree with Brendan on the uh, you know the uh, diagnosis of the situation. I think it's important to keep in mind that NATO uh, today is not the same as NATO, let's say, in the year 1989, right before the uh, the end of the Cold War. I mean, right. NATO is a much bigger entity now in terms of the uh, number of countries that are part of it, and it's a an organization that has reinvented itself to a certain extent and uh, taken part in in other kinds of uh, missions, right, in various uh, parts of the world. It's also an organization that, although you could say that it's being or it was successful because it did survive the Cold War, right? Uh, and presumably it was a uh, an element in in the uh, unfolding of that of that conflict. 
Uh, it is also, uh, I think, an organization that has been um, repeatedly accused of, uh, you know, failing to um, intervene in the right way or to uh, overcome, uh, you know, issues, especially, you know, during the Balkan War and yeah. so on and so forth, right? So there's, there's a lot of discussions here and there. But, you know, as a Southern European, um, I uh, feel for Eastern Europe, right? because uh, they are at the forefront of, uh, right now, Russian aggression in more ways than one. I have uh, very good friends in Lithuania, for instance, yeah. and they are scared to hell. They really are, yeah. right? It happened, um, you know, a number of decades ago that the uh, Soviet Union at the time took over their country, and it could happen again. Well, is right? it, is it, a, it has to be a little worrisome, I think, to a lot of people in Europe, the fact that, one, that the United States, it, was, it made news last week, that the U.S. was actually putting more troops in Poland uh, and in Denmark, I think was the, was the other location that they were putting troops in, which was which was kind of a surprise, I think, to a lot of people. Well, I think the Ob- that was the Obama administration, right, exactly, and yeah. I guess they were trying to maybe uh, you know do something that would make it harder uh, for Trump to. Uh, you know, to uh, make a move in the other direction, right? Because if one month uh, you're bringing in more troops and then another month, uh, you know, later, uh, once the new administration is in place, uh, you are, uh, you know, you have a little bit more difficulty actually, you know, reversing that course, right? Now the trend is we are increasing our commitment uh, to Eastern Europe, right? So it will be a little bit harder for the new administration now uh, to take uh, one step back or two steps back. Right. Uh, but if you talk to Eastern Europeans, Poles, Czechs, uh, Romanians, um, uh, Lithuanians uh, today, what you will hear from them is angst, right? Yeah. They are in fear. And, of course, they know that the European Union uh, itself is not ready to uh, confront Russia, right? Let's not forget Germany, powerhouse in Europe. But Germany is dependent on... Russian supplies of natural gas for 40% of their needs. Right, exactly. Uh, Talking about dependency, right? That is extraordinary, right? And you have to take that into account. Uh, So Merkel is always very, very uh, careful, right, in dealing with with Russia, right? Precisely for that reason, right? Yeah. I think one of the... um remarkable slanders of NATO that took place was the suggestion that it has uh, not been operative against terrorism. So we know that immediately after 9-11, NATO was deployed for the first time out of area to support the United States in Afghanistan. And every single NATO ally, even tiny Denmark, contributed four or 500 troops, showed their solidarity at that juncture. So it is extremely... uh, ill-advised to damage your potential relationships with your allies. And what we see unfolding in Eastern Europe is very plain. You could argue that America took a risk by advancing the borders of uh, of, of NATO closer and closer to Russia. It received warnings not to go further towards Ukraine, and so did the EU. And it wasn't clear that there was clarity about Western policy towards Ukraine. Putin seized the moment. He attacked a non-NATO ally. So there will, I think, be a lot of probing to come of the defences of the states of Eastern Europe that are within NATO, and they'll be the Baltic states and they'll be Poland. Uh, And I think those places will be appealing quite significantly 
to both Germany and France to increase their capabilities. They'll be looking forward also to enhanced contributions that, that are necessary from Spain and Italy. Uh, and throughout those states that are both members of the European Union and members of NATO. What's been the reaction in Germany so far to, to President Trump because of the fact that, as Mauro mentioned, I mean, Germany is kind of the, the leader of the European Union. And certainly we have quite a few uh, issues of, uh, of election coming up uh, across Europe right now. So from Angela Merkel, I would say a reaction of polite restraint. Um, emphasizing that she would be supporting the president if he was constitutional, a respecter of human rights, uh, an ally committed to his uh, international obligations and so on. It was the politest possible way of saying, um, I, I will be ready to speak if necessary. Um, of those European leaders who've spoken, I, I would think that her remarks were the most restrained, uh, restrained and the most sober. Uh, in the German left press, uh, there is, of course, um, far more anxiety about Trump. Uh, on the right, there's some enthusiasm for him. But one of the consequences of unfolding events in Germany you referred to elections uh, may well be uh, the following. I think alternative for Germany, which is the right-wing populist movement in Germany, will indeed do better. But contrary to what people fear, I think that that will mean that Merkel will then become much more dependent upon her coalition partners in the Social Democrats. So you'll actually have the center of gravity of the German coalition government move somewhat more to the left and somewhat more strongly uh, pro-European and the protection of standard human rights platforms and, and liberal democracy. Well, I, I would add to that analysis that um, just a few months uh, away from an election in Germany, Trump actually criticized uh, Merkel right, yeah. for her immigration policy, thus giving you know uh, arguments to uh, alternative for Germany, alternative for Deutschland, which is the, uh, the populist uh, party. Um, and uh, yes, I think it's quite remarkable that Angela Merkel didn't fight back, right, and didn't say anything. She just... Uh, you know, said what I uh, any 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 reputable you know and uh, and uh, pragmatic politician should do um, in that circumstance, right? That's not Trump's style, unfortunately. Sure. Yeah. Uh, but he was essentially giving ammunition to the uh, to yeah. the right wing in Germany by saying, "Look, your chancellor has you know essentially allowed for this mess to happen," which is you know to a certain extent. Uh, you know, there's some element of truth there, right, in terms right. of how the refugee crisis has been handled. Right. But one thing is to do, uh, you know, to, to point that out in some subtle way, and quite another is to accuse, you know, the German chancellor of being, you right. know, a, uh, a loser, right? Yeah, Which is what Trump did, right, right? Yeah. Uh, and, just a few days ago. And, and the irony has not been lost in the European Union of Trump's sensitivity to criticisms that the Russians interfered in American elections. Right. And here he is more or less at the beginning interfering in European electoral mm -hmm. processes. Right. What about uh, with France, with Marine, uh, you know, the election there and Marine Le Pen, who obviously met, many people now have seen the photo of her at, at Trump Tower just a few days ago. <laughs> uh, she is doing well in the polls. I do not expect her to become the president of France. Uh, I think the, quest the interesting question will be who will she be competing with in right. the second round? Will it be Fillon, the representative of the Republicans? Will it be um, one of the socialists? They just had their uh, primary over the weekend. Or will it be uh, an independent, Macron, who is rising high in the polls? My own guess is that it will be Macron. 
uh, that that will uh, he will show in the polls as the person most likely to get the traditional left vote out and everybody else against Le Pen. By contrast, the fear is that, that if it is Filon against Le Pen, the left will sit on its hands and not go out to vote. Hmm. Uh, so it would not be a repeat of what happened when Chirac faced her father long ago. So a lot will depend upon whom she faces. Mara? Agreed. So the next few weeks are really important. Yeah, and, and that election will take place when? <coughs> when does the election in France take place? Um, I believe it's in the summer, but I'm uh, yes. don't hold me to that. And it's before the German election. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So as we're talking with Mauro Guillen of the Wharton School and Brendan O'Leary uh, of the University of Pennsylvania, Professor of Political Science, your comments are welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. When... When you make a statement that you could potentially see cracks developing in the European Union, uh, obviously a lot of people will jump on the fact that it, we've got one country that has decided to – one entity that has decided to make this, make this move. And there are still 28 others that are, you know, that are still uh, seemingly strong together. Are they very strong together? At this point, they're certainly at their um, nadir in terms of collective solidarity and agreement on core policies. And everybody, you can list the crises that the European Union has gone through: yeah. failure to make a constitution, uh, failure to accompany a fiscal policy with a monetary policy, failure to have a public works or public investment program that could compensate for some of the worst consequences of austerity. Uh, disagreements on uh, international relations of various kinds, and so on. We could go on endlessly. Nevertheless, the machine continues. It yeah. goes forward. And it doesn't take too much imagination to imagine uh, why things are becoming better. Uh, generally speaking, there's a little bit of a, a global economic uptick. Most of the countries that went through extreme austerity programs are coming out of them. So Ireland and uh, Greece both went through aversion therapy programs. Ireland is out of its position. Its, uh, its political class is entirely pro-European, from the, the far left to the far right. Portugal has also come out of austerity. Greece remains in difficulty, but remarkably. And maybe people think this is a, a demonstration that some nations are excellent masochists. Right. The Greek nation, a majority, still prefers to stay in the Eurozone, despite the pain that that costs them personally and in terms of their, their economy. Um, the big uh, unknown case, in my view, the vulnerable point is, is Italy. If Italy were to generate in the next period... Um, uh, an anti-integration government, a government that did want to leave the Eurozone, that could um, be deeply destabilizing for the Eurozone. And the possibility of that happening is? I wouldn't like to put a number on it. It would okay. depend on Italian election outcomes, and they're not easy to predict. Um, I, I nevertheless think it would be un, it would be it would certainly be unprecedented to elect. Uh, as prime minister, a comedian. Uh, we've just elected a showman. They would be electing a comedian, and all bets would then be off. How strong do you see the EU right now, Mauro? The EU uh, or the Eurozone, that's the question. Right, right. I mean, right. It's just yes, two very different exactly. things. Exactly, yeah, that's true, yes. And uh, <laughs> we've been confounding them a little bit here. Um, I think the Eurozone will continue for a very long time to be uh, under stress. Uh, 
for, for a very plain reason. So I'm originally from Spain, and I can tell you that the way in which uh, people think about money, the way in which people think about the future, the way in which people think about savings, about investing, about having debt, is very different from the way in which a Dutchman or somebody from Sweden or somebody from Germany thinks right. about all of those issues. Right. So to try to bring all of those different kinds of people under the same uh, you know, straitjacket, which at the end of the day, that's what a monetary uh, or currency union is, it's just very difficult from a cultural point of view. Now, added to all of that, we have the uh, institutional you know, deficits in terms of not having other pieces of the puzzle that are uh, very important to underpin a monetary union, right? Like fiscal policy, like uh, banking supervision, all sorts of things. Yeah. European Union, sure. I mean, the uh, majorities in terms of public opinion are there, and uh, people see the benefits of uh, free movement of people uh, for themselves, right? Perhaps sure. not for immigrants. Uh, right. They see the benefits of uh, being able to participate in university exchanges. They see the benefits of being able to travel without having to show a uh, more than a national ID if you're flying, and no documents at all if you're just driving across the border. Right. So people see all of those benefits. The problem, I think, has been that the European Union has been trying, the European Union, right, not the Eurozone, has yeah. been trying to accomplish too much into a short period of time, bringing in new members, right, trying to deepen uh, what they do into services, uh, different kinds of regulations, all sorts of things. At the end of the day, right, and I say this as a pragmatic uh, European it may not have been a bad idea that the British actually leave from the following point of view, which I think it sends a very, very strong signal to the um, ideologues in Brussels who believe that integration is always going to lead to a better outcome, right. that they need to think twice about it, right? Now, of course, I would prefer right, uh, the UK not to leave the, uh, the European Union, uh, but if it's going to happen, <clears throat> it may have that positive impact. It may have it, right, that people are going to think twice about taking to... Uh, too many steps towards integration when you have so much diversity, so many different kinds of traditions in Europe. It's very difficult to build a you know, union of the kind that was envisioned, especially in the 1990s, by some of the uh, leaders of the European integration movement mm -hmm. uh, within such a short period of time when you have such you know, different countries. And when the European Union expanded to the East and into the Balkans, yeah. it made that diversity even, even greater. So Europe today... To your point or your question earlier, I think it's far more divided, right, than it was 10 or 15 years ago. There's no question about that. Part of that is the, as a result of the crisis, but part of it is also, I think, the uh, overly or overambitious, you know, policies uh, and commitments that were made by, by leaders, um, you know, 15, 20 years ago. I, I agree with that. I would um, add a couple of things. I would say in Eastern Europe... Traditionally, um, since 1989, they have been very pro-American, precisely to balance against Russia. Right. If they fear that the American president is too close to Russia, that will give them every incentive to balance closer to uh, the center of Europe, to France, Germany, Italy, Spain. I agree with um, my colleague that there could be positive upsides for the European Union from the UK leaving. Not in the sense that it, it, the Federalists' ambitions to create sure. a, a straightforward yeah. uh, federal Europe will be easy to accomplish, but they will have got a big warning. They, have, they will have to make sure that the price of exit is high for the UK to discourage others from following the same pattern. Right. And at the same time, they will have to think very carefully about the lack of popularity of both the Eurozone and the European Union among working class publics. The European Union is a very successful bourgeois project. 
It has to widen its class base. It has to ensure that the benefits of the union are palpably visible to the old, uh, the el to the to the old and to the unemployed and to those who are unskilled. So, in some respects, it's facing exactly the same political economy challenges that have occurred here in terms of the threats posed by globalization to domestic solidarity. So, to a degree, they need to they need to uh, start to think that they can't stand with the status quo anymore. No. They have to be more flexible and, and be prepared for potential challenges right. like the like we're seeing from the UK. So in the 1990s, in many of the new member states, as previously in Ireland, Spain and Portugal, you saw uh, extremely successful European investment projects, right. visible in highways and in, in all sorts of other ways. Right. There needs to be similar kinds of projects that have a European stamp that, that are, but are not seen as, uh, and and after once you've once you've had these projects, then you'll be totally part of a federal Europe. Yeah. Uh, but they have to be sensible, targeted projects that that widen the support base of the European Union. We talked, I think, with you, Mauro, a while back about the about the European Union and, and the eurozone in general. But to, as you kind of alluded to, to believe that twenty nine countries or you know a variety of different different thought processes could come together in one way and follow one monetary policy, that's almost impossible, isn't it? Uh, it's not impossible, but it's uh, it's hard. I think it's a, it comes down to how do you prioritize integration and how quickly can you implement integration. Yeah. Let's not forget, the United States went through a civil war, and uh, quite frankly, integration here of the different, um, if you want to put it that way, cultures or institutional legacies yeah. or traditions, even legal traditions in many cases, yeah. took a long time, right? Uh, even into the 1960s, right? Yeah. So well, some uh, would question whether difficult. the South is integrated today. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very difficult. Yeah. But in fact, actually, you know, talking about uh, money matters, you know, there's this theory of optimal currency areas. And the Eurozone obviously is not an optimal currency area, right. but neither is the United States. Okay, so the uh, using the same methodology, you also reach the same conclusion about the United States that to have one single monetary policy in the United States with such differences across, uh, you know, the uh, 50 states, yeah. actually is not optimal either. Okay, that's that's, uh, and these guys who proposed that theory won the Nobel Prize, right, for, right. for using that methodology. So the outcome is the same. It's very difficult to bring under the same institutional, legal, monetary, and so on and so forth umbrella such large you know, countries. Right? The same goes for Brazil. The same goes for the Russian Federation. It's very difficult to organize you know, these large continental-sized you know, polities right? under one roof you know, with, uh, with a... Uh, with a uh, uh, you know, a uh, scaffolding or a framework, uh, you know, that includes both, uh, you know, a legal framework, it includes uh, economic policy making, it includes all of these things, right? Even a political system. I think the whole controversy in this country over the Electoral College speaks to this very powerfully because yeah. at the root of that is the settlement, right, that took place in the midst of the, uh, uh, you know, the, or in the wake of the, uh, of the American Civil War, right? And it's yeah. All of well, this it's, can it's, be traced old, back to all sorts, of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, all sorts of, uh, of uh, issues with how do you accommodate diversity as you're building a bigger and bigger you know, political entity, right? It's very difficult, not just in Europe, right? right? Uh, the, 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 the actual Brexit, I, I think a lot of people are saying it feels like it's going to be longer and longer period of time to be able to actually put that together. Are you in that? Are you in that school as well? I, th I think that's not clear because okay. the UK has now made it evident 
that it's it's leaving both the customs union and the single market. Yep. So the core of the negotiations will be Britain's debt, what it owes the European Union for leaving, all sure. prior commitments to civil servants, pensions, programs that it promised it would be uh, committed to and so on, and whether there would be an interim trade agreement. Now, the incentive to make uh, a compromise on the part of the European Union partners is quite minimal. And the incentives to support Ireland in ensuring that the uh, exit does not damage the Good Friday Agreement, which yeah. uh, created a borderless Ireland, those are strong. So for that reason, the UK has got a, a tough option. Either it's in for a very long haul. I mean, once it announces, once it hears the size of the bill, yeah. And it then has to ask itself, how does that play with our tabloid press? Right. Paying the Krauts 50 billion sterling, you know? Uh, you can imagine how, how, it, will, how it will be uh, portrayed. So you'll have, those you'll have those difficulties. But at least they'll get a hospital in the NHS every week, So they may wish um, to delay. They may, however, decide to take the pain of a quick exit uh, and the reason they might do that is that the quicker they leave, the longer the period till the next elections. Right. If they yeah. leave without having any settled uh, trade deal, it is likely that there'll be a rout on the foreign exchange markets and they'll have a tough time, even though people kind of know it's coming. Yeah. Uh, if they leave without an agreement, it means they get big high tariff walls. Lots of their foreign direct investment then uh, is questionable. Um, so they'll, ha they'll have a very troublesome moment. So they, they have to decide, do they take that pain immediately or do they, do they try and get it over with before they then face the electorate? The British headlines are great just in general. <laughs> I can imagine what they'll be with all of this over the next several months. Great seeing you both. Thank you very much, Brendan. Thank you. Thank great you tomorrow. Having great to have you both. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.